So for the last two weeks, we've been um, observing a broad cultural problem exists in the 21st century West, and it has seeped into local churches, and the problem is arrogance. Uh, 21st century America seems to cherish and cultivate arrogance in its citizens, including us. And so it's not uncommon to find Christians in local churches separating along various party lines in such a way that they begin to look down on each other, to judge each other, or at the very least, um, they act differently uh, toward one another. But last week, we saw a different way to think and to live. If you believe the gospel, and God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit lives within you, he gives us the ability to believe, to think, and to live differently. To have a unity within the body of Christ that goes beyond the party lines that separate people in the world. And Paul says it this way, that we not only have, but can think with the mind of Christ. And what did that look look like last week? Well, how did Jesus think? What was the ultimate choice that he made but to die? So this way of living out the mind of Christ, having the mind of Christ, is to live a life in such a way that I am seeking to lay down my life for my neighbor, and for their eternal good. And so if all of us are operating from that position of daily saying, how can I lay down my life? How can I make sacrifices of myself for my neighbor's eternal good? That gives us a different playing field. That gives us a different uh, basis from which to relate to one another. But this problem of arrogance and this cruciform way of living, this gospel-shaped way of living... They meet in a messy middle. What do we do when spirit-filled people don't believe, think, and live differently? What do we do when we get twisted up in how we think about each other and talk about each other and relate to each other? When the choices we've made lead us to very different places. Because that's the problem that Paul was facing in Corinth. They'd drawn these party lines. They'd begun to think about each other differently. They'd even failed to love one another as becomes brothers and sisters. And that made it hard for Paul to even know how to talk to them. Where do you even begin this conversation? So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll begin at the beginning of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read... Verses 1 through 4. You can leave your, your finger there because we will go back to it over and over. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready For you are still of the flesh. Remember, he's talking to Christians, spirit-filled Christians. And yet he says, I can't even talk to you in the right terms because you're still of the flesh. You're operating in this worldly way of thinking. Continuing in verse 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely, merely human? Paul, a pastor, 
looks at his congregation, and he wants to talk to them about the tough issues, meaty issues, but they weren't ready for it. They were still operating out of a fleshly paradigm, and that was frustrating for him. So what do they need to be able to move forward? What do we need for our church to have unity in divided times? We need five things. You ready for the five things we need? This is, the, this is a solution that a lot of people are looking for. What are the five things we need to move forward in unity in divided times? We need, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. Number four, humility. And number five, boasting. Boasting. But before we look at these five things that we need for unity, I want us to stop and think about this. If a church in these times has real biblical unity, what does that look like? Here's your first point in your worship guide, and you may need to correct me. We'll see. The unity that Christ intends for local churches is less about ideas, busyness, and talk. And it's more about getting things done for the kingdom. The unity that Christ intends for local churches is less about ideas, busyness, and talk. And it's more about getting things done for the kingdom. Yes, there are some ideas that we want to agree about. We want to agree on the most important things. We want to agree on the essentials of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, the basic truths of the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with talking about secondary ancillary things. We'll get into this in a minute theology, philosophy, cultural, whatever. It's fine to talk about those things, but the unity to which Christ calls us is unity of love. This is your next blank. I'm pretty sure I changed this one. The unity to which Christ calls us is unity of love, actionable love for God and neighbor. This is the unity that we're to have, unity of love, actionable love for God and neighbor. In chapter 4, As Paul is wrapping up this portion of his letter to the Corinthians, he says, listen, guys, I want to come visit you soon. It's been too long. And when I get there, these arrogant, divisive people that are splitting you up, I'm going to meet these people face to face. And listen to what Paul says. Jump to chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. This is, this is, these are fighting words. Paul says, I bet these arrogant people in your church are all talk. They love to flap their gums about stuff, but when it gets down to it, they don't want to do very much. So you can disagree and take whatever party line you want. You can talk about what you want, but the kingdom is less concerned about talk and it's more concerned with action. Here's your next two blanks. The devil loves it when Christians get distracted by bad things that lead to sin or schism. He loves that. When we get distracted by bad things that lead to sin or schism. But the devil also loves it when we get distracted by good things that lead to no redemptive action. The devil loves it when we get distracted by good things that lead to no redemptive action. And I've seen both things happen in solid, evangelical, reformed churches. You've probably seen it happen too. The devil, of course, loves it when bad things lead to sin and schism, but he also loves it when good things lead to no redemptive action. So the devil loves it 
when Christians read their Bible, talk about the Bible, and then do nothing to obey the Bible. The devil loves it when people go to church and Sunday school to satisfy their conscience and then live the rest of their week no different way. The devil loves it when we go through the motions of being a church without actually being the church, without being a missional presence of Christ in the world. I'll say it the way I told our session, what, last week, two weeks ago, Todd? When did we meet last? This is last month I said this. Most people think of the church as a service industry. Uh, Church members view themselves as the customer. They come to events um, and ministries to be served. And in this model, the pastor and the elders and the leadership, they're they're like the chef and the wait staff, right? And the congregation comes to be served. That's not a biblical model of church. That's not how the Bible talks about church. If you want to think about the church as a business, which has problems in and of itself, you are part owner and you are a key employee. Because the business of the church, reaching the world with the name of Jesus, that happens through you every day of the week. It generally doesn't happen through this time and this space. Worship, what we're doing on Sunday, is a launching pad for you being the church all week long, being on mission with Christ. But that's not the church culture that we're used to. In most churches, the majority of the congregation attends when it's convenient, they serve very seldom, and they tithe very little. You know, 10% of the congregation does 90% of the carries 90% of the ministry burden. And I'm happy to say that's not us. That's not our ratio. But we're not terribly far from it. As leaders, we believe God has called us to do big things in St. Tammany, to get the gospel to every household in St. Tammany Parish. We want every household in St. Tammany Parish to have heard the gospel in a clear and compelling way. But talking up here doesn't make it happen. And me and the the leadership of the church doing it, that doesn't make it happen either. We all have a part to play in the calling that God has given us. And we need you to commit seriously to this missional work of faith. We need every member to give time. We need every member of this church to be praying for our gospel work. We need every household in this church to tithe sacrificially to FPC. If you just want to show up somewhere and feel better about yourself, we're probably not going to be the church for you. But if you want to make a difference in your neighborhood, you want to make a difference here in this town, if you want to tell people that you love about Jesus, you want to invest in the children in this congregation, you're in the right place. Talk is cheap. Bible studies are fine. But the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but of power. Here's your next blank. The unity that Jesus calls us to is an active unity. The leaders and members of the church together spreading the message and effects of the gospel. It's an active unity to which he calls us. The leaders and members of the church together spreading the message and effects of the gospel. So our job as leaders is to equip you and to send you and then to go alongside you on the front lines of gospel ministry. So we're not like back at the rear command post while you guys are out on the front lines doing ministry. No, we do this together on the battlefield seeking to take kingdom ground. That's what our event on December 8th is all about. Maybe you haven't heard about it yet. It's called Awaken Christmas. Several churches are partnering together. We've rented out the Covington Trailhead, and we're going to sing Christmas songs. 
There's going to be 500 cookies and a bunch of carafes of hot chocolate. And the whole goal is for you to bring your unbelieving friends and family in a really unintimidating environment and to have, create a space for them to hear about Jesus. So I and Pastor Josh from St. Timothy's, we're going to preach the gospel but we got cookies and stuff so you can hang out and talk about what you just heard. We're creating a space for you to talk to your neighbors, your friends, your family about Jesus. This is the sort of thing that we want to be doing together more and more. The goal is not, hey, come listen to these experts who will talk to you about something in a really compelling way. No, let's talk together about what Jesus has done in our lives and what Jesus is doing in the world. I hope... I hope you'll come. I hope you'll bring someone for the event. I think it'll be a really fun Christmas experience for all of us. Regardless, that's the ideal kind of unity that God wants for us. Unity and redemptive action, working together to spread the message and effects of the gospel here and now. So if that's the unity that we should be pursuing, all of us working together to get the the name of Jesus to our neighbors, that's the unity that we so long for and we so need How can we have it? To have that kind of unity in our church, we need five things. Humility, 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 and boasting. Here's the first humility that we need. It's your next blank. To have unity in our church, we need humility about our own minds, beliefs, and perspective. We need humility humility about our own minds, beliefs, and perspective. Go back to chapter 3, verse 18. Just going to read the opening sentence of this verse, but we'll come back to it in just a moment. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. How do you keep yourself from self-deception? I mean, isn't that the whole idea, the whole point, that you don't realize you have deceived yourself? Paul goes on in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. Paul's giving us a warning about ourselves. He's giving us a warning about the wisdom of the world. What's the warning? It's your next blank. Doubt your own objectivity. Doubt your own objectivity. You can deceive yourself. Others can deceive you. You can be wrong. Yes, even, even the pastor and elders. We can be wrong, too. This is the first humility to which Paul invites us. Just because I believe something, because I become convinced of something, it doesn't mean I'm right. I can deceive myself. The world can deceive me. Others can deceive me. I can be wrong, and you can, too. But that's not usually how we think about ourselves. Here's your next blank. We tend to think of ourselves as wiser and more foolproof than we realize. But we need to be humble in our own self-estimation. We need to be humble in our own self-estimation. Paul's not saying to to check your brain at the door. He's not saying you have to be stupid or that, that you're wrong about everything. He's just saying that we should be giving other Christians the benefit of the doubt. We can be deceived by ourselves and by the world. And what that means is we don't have to agree with each other on everything. But we have to be willing to listen to each other respectfully and to even have... Our minds changed. This is key to having a diversity of opinions within the body of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul put it this way. Look in your worship guide. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So here's the question that each of us has to ask. Have you allowed your mind, your beliefs, your perspective to cause division within the body? Have you only doubted others or have you doubted yourself? Have you given the Christians who disagree with you the benefit of the doubt and thought, maybe they know more than me. Maybe they're actually right in this circumstance. And if you have, have you been willing to let them disagree with you without making a judgment about them? How do do we need to repent here? But that's the first humility that we need. Humility in our own self-estimation. Humility in our own mind, beliefs, and perspective. But that's not the only humility that we need. Here's your next blank. To have unity in our church, the kind of unity we're working together to spread the message and effects of the gospel, we need to be individually living out the humiliation of Christ. To have this kind of unity, we need to together be living out the humiliation of Christ. Throughout these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, and in the verses we're about to read, Paul uses the words wisdom and folly over and over. He kind of goes in and out of wisdom and folly in a very poetic way. What is he communicating about the world's wisdom, the world's way of thinking, and what they consider to be foolishness, and God's wisdom and foolishness? Think about it as we read. Go back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So what is Paul communicating? Here's your next two blanks. Thinking like the world, the wisdom of the world, which is this, valuing people based upon their wisdom... That is foolish. Thinking like the world, valuing people based upon their wisdom, is foolish. And here's your next blank. Meanwhile, living according to God's wisdom will make you look like a fool to the world because it'll land you on a cross. To live out God's wisdom will make you look like a fool to the world because it will land you on a cross. You'll be dying, giving of yourself for your neighbor's eternal good. As I said last week, Paul is not saying that earthly leaders, experts, business people, and the way they think is, is idiotic. No, these human experts, they're, they're great for their field, but what they can't do is tell you how to improve your soul. What they can't tell you is, is how to live for eternity, what to do to be saved. So what Paul is saying, though, is if you think about people the way the world thinks about people, If you value people based upon whether you agree with them or not, then you're headed down a futile path that ends in a trap. He will catch the wise in their craftiness. This way of living, judging people based upon whether we agree or disagree, is a path that leads to death and hell. It's the world's way to say, if you don't agree with me, if you don't agree with my ideas, I cancel you. You're out of my life. You're out of my community, and if I can help it, you're out of society altogether. We just can't do that in the church. We're tied together by something deeper. Paul calls us to a different way of wisdom. And this different way of wisdom is imitating Christ in his death. Imagine it. If every one of us was daily 
eagerly looking to lay down our lives, to lay down our rights, to give our whole selves not only for each other, but also for the eternal good of our neighbors, that humiliation, shared humiliation, would unite us. That kind of mutual humiliation would lead to redemption, sanctification, and holiness, the things that Paul talked about back in chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. Look in your worship guide again. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, you might call it the mind of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a theme to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be a disciple of Jesus to make oneself a servant of the world, to lay down our lives for the needs, the eternal needs of our neighbors. This is a humility that we need if we're to be united in action while diverse in beliefs. And if we live this way, consistently imitating the sacrificial love of Christ for our neighbors, we will succeed in our kingdom calling. Here's your next blank. I'm almost completely confident that I changed this one. The mature Christian is the one who willingly lays down their own life for their neighbors. They risk it all for their neighbors' redemption, sanctification, and holiness. You can look back at 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 for uh, there's a reference there. The mature Christian is one who willingly lays down their own life for their neighbors. They risk it all for their neighbors' redemption, sanctification, and holiness. This is radical talk. This is a radical way of living. And it's what our country, our state, and our parish have seen very little of in the last two years. They've seen it some, but not as often as they should have. To the world, this way of living looks like dying. This wisdom sounds like foolishness because what is their way? The arrogant way is that through wisdom and associations, you make yourself great and you make others look bad. But to have unity in the church, this kind of missional unity, we need five things, starting with humility of mind and the humiliation of Christ replicated in each of us. What's the next humility that we need? It's your next blank. To have unity in our church we need to humble ourselves when we're tempted to celebrate and associate with people, leaders, and organizations that threaten to divide us. When we're tempted to celebrate and association with people, leaders, and organizations that threaten to divide us, we need to slow our roll a little bit, so to speak. So a few weeks ago, I wore a Red Sox tie on Sunday morning. As you know, I married a girl from Boston, so I married into the Red Sox. Uh, and I don't often wear team-specific apparel to church. It's not every year the Sox make it into the ALCS, though, and I'm not saying you can't wear your Saints shirts or that sort of thing. It's, that's, it's a conscience issue. But let me be frank. If somebody walked up to me afterwards and said, that really offended me. I have been a diehard Yankees fan for my entire life. I'm going to pray for them afterwards for sure if they were to say that. But if they said, I've been a diehard Yankees fan all my life, and that really bothers me that you wore that, uh, I never wear my Yankees gear on Sunday morning. You know what I do? I'd never wear the tie again. Like, I just, I, I like the Red Sox, but I love you guys. <laughs> the, the, the commitment I have to you is much higher than the commitment that I have to the Red Sox. Now, that's a silly example, 
But the point still stands. Our level of heart obligation should be greater to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ than to anyone or anything outside the body of Christ. Or, and, our level of heart commitment to each other should be greater than any idea outside of the gospel. Look at verses 19 through 21 in chapter 3. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. The history of the Christian church is littered, just littered with examples of alliances with governments and human leaders and extra-biblical ideas that ultimately did not spread the kingdom of God but instead ruined our witness, divided the church, and drew the church not into holiness and sanctification and redemption, but into disarray and schism. When the church of Jesus Christ cozies up to ideas, organizations, and people outside the church, when we begin to boast in anything other than Christ, we're headed down the path to ruin. And that is true when I'm talking about, uh, let's say, the adoption of critical race theory, something outside of the Bible, or affiliation with the Republican Party. Those are radically different ideas and organizations, that sort of thing. But that's the point. Anything outside of Christ, anything outside of the gospel, when we cozy ourselves up to it, is a dangerous position to put ourselves in. Here's your next blank. When we are tempted to celebrate anything or associate with any people, leaders, or organizations that are not Jesus, we need to be real careful. If it ain't Jesus, we need to be real careful signing on the dotted line. Clearly, I'm not saying we can't have partnerships. We're members of a denomination, after all, and this denomination was not founded by Jesus. I love the EPC, but it wasn't founded by Jesus. I'm just saying we need to be careful. It is fully possible to yoke yourself to something or someone that is ultimately not seeking the glory of God in Christ. But the problem, of course, is not just people and organizations. It's also ideas. In the local church, when can we agree to disagree? And are there times where it's appropriate to part ways when we disagree? It's a hard question. Here's your next blank. As Christians, we do draw hard lines in the sand on moral and social issues that are addressed in Scripture. There are moral and social issues that are addressed in Scripture where we do draw hard lines and we say, we're going to have to part fellowship over these sorts of things. We'll look at Scripture and say, you should do this, or you should not do this. In fact, some churches, including the EPC, allows for excommunication for people who cross these bounds and consistently and brazenly do it without repentance. So how can you possibly make that decision? Like, when is a problem so severe that we have to break fellowship? I mean, can't we agree to disagree? Our denomination, the EPC, abides by this motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. In short, if you want to be a member of our church, you don't have to agree with us on much. Just the essentials of the gospel. 
We actually have a document that explains what that is, but it's basically the Apostles' Creed. So we have to agree on those things. But what about these non-essentials? We just, ah, whatever you want to do is fine. Well, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have some position papers to clarify our views on some non-essentials. For example, let's just go for it. I've been really careful in this whole sermon series not to get on anything too touchy. I'm just going to go for a touchy issue. We teach that abortion is a sin. Now, some professing, our, our, I do, our, our leadership here at the church believes that, our denomination believes that, period. Abortion is, is a sin. There are professing Christians who disagree with us on that issue. And as far as our church polity works, you don't have to agree with us on abortion to be a member of our church. We don't, we don't believe it's essential to salvation, right? But it is important. So how do you deal with an issue like that that is actually very, very important? I mean, a matter of life and death and how we engage with our culture, how can you agree to disagree on something like that? Well, how does it work? Paul tells us. Paul shows us. Turn to chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brother. So these weren't the actual party lines, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. He says, I've applied these to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul says, go back to what is written. Go back to to the scriptures. Go to the word of God. Urge one another. When you disagree on something, brother, sister, let's go to the word together. Let's see what God has to say about this together. And if a brother or sister is not arguing from the scriptures, call them back to the scriptures. Persuade them with the scriptures. But if their position is strongly supported or strongly rooted in the scriptures, that's where we have to agree to disagree. If it isn't, If they're persisting in some serious error that's causing sin or schism, that's when you go through the process that Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 18. Take another brother or sister to show. So with abortion, for example, I think it's very easy to argue from Scripture that abortion is a sin. But the irony is, I don't think it's because the Bible says that life begins at conception. I don't think that's the argument to be made. The argument to be made is that God is the one who gives life and takes it. So anytime we interfere in that process, we're dabbling in God's work. So we go hands off. You look at the church fathers, they all debated as to when life actually began, when the soul entered the child. Augustine and Anselm and uh, all these folks, they, they disagreed on that because Scripture doesn't tell us exactly, but instead it says life is God's. So we don't touch. There have been many circumstances in the last two years when we've disagreed on things that are actually important. But the difficulty that I found as a pastor is that when we pressed into these issues, the scriptures were rarely our basis. We were getting our reasons from other places, and they were outside the church. We were getting our wisdom from the world rather than from the scriptures. Paul would remind us, don't go beyond what is written. So consider how you speak to others. When you disagree, consider what you post on social media. Consider how you align yourself with people, ideas, and organizations outside the body of Christ and outside the scriptures and hold those things very loosely 
because I love you guys way more than I love the Red Sox or any of these other groups and ideas. That's the third humility that we need if we're to have unity in divided times. We need to humble ourselves when we're tempted to celebrate uh, and associate with leaders, organizations, and ideas outside the scriptures and outside the church that would threaten to divide us. There's a fourth humility that we need. It's your next blank. To have unity in our church, we need to humble ourselves and remember who owns whom. We need to humble ourselves and remember who owns whom. Kids, uh, sorry, I hadn't asked you all a question in a little while. I've just been blowing and going. Kids, who owns this church? Who do you think? Mike says God, okay. Joe, who do you think owns this church? God, God? okay. Who do you think owns Pastor Jason? Megan, that is... <laughs> I may need to correct my sermon outline as I go forward from here. Who do you think owns the session of this church? I think most of us would answer, oh, God. God's in charge. God owns this church. God owns the pastor. God owns the session. That's not actually what Paul says. That's not what he says here. Go back to verse 21 in chapter 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, church. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. So who owns the church? Paul says, everything belongs to God, and Christ, the King of Israel, and all things, he belongs to God, and you, Christian, you belong to Jesus. So if you belong to Jesus, Jesus belongs to God, that means you own everything. You sit in a position of authority over your pastor, over your elders, even over life, death, the world, the present, the future, all are yours, Paul says. What in the world is, what? What is he talking about? What does this mean that that you own all things, even life and death? Paul is trying to put us in an eschatological mood here. He's trying to get us to think about eternity. He's trying to get us to look beyond reality to the deeper truth of life. What will you inherit in eternity? When Jesus comes back, what will belong to you? When Jesus comes back, what will your position in the ranking order be, Christian? Here's your next blank. I feel like I changed this one too. In eternity, followers of Christ will rule over God's kingdom on earth. When Jesus comes back, followers of Christ will rule over God's kingdom on earth. So as Adam and Eve ruled in the garden, so we will rule over the new earth. We will be Christ's emissaries, his emissaries, his vassal leaders under his kingship. That's who you are. So if you own the world, if you own all things and all people, why do we ally and identify ourselves with any human leader? Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Jason? You were meant to rule. You were meant to be kings alongside Christ. So we don't affiliate with any leader, any even spiritual leaders. We seek to affiliate ourselves with Christ 
and him crucified. But let me take it a step further. How can we, as the future rulers of the world, affiliate ourselves with unbelieving people in a way that separates us from our co-heirs of the kingdom? It's madness that the world would divide us against each other. We will one day judge the world, so let us not judge one another based upon our affiliations with unbelieving leaders and worldly ideas. It's madness. So Paul's real question is this, your next blank. What are you allowing to define you? The things that you will own one day or the one who owns you forever? What are you allowing to define you? The things that you will own one day or the one who owns you forever? We need to humble ourselves. We need humility of mind. We need to imitate the humiliation of Jesus. We need to humble ourselves when ideas and groups outside of the church and the Bible threaten to divide us. And we need to humble ourselves by remembering who owns what and whom. You own the world, so don't let them own you. And that immediately calls us to the boasting, that fifth thing, the boasting that we need for unity in our church. Here's your next blank. To have unity in our church, we must be constantly boasting in the one who has given us everything. To have unity in our church, we must be constantly boasting in the one who has given us everything. Look again at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul says, you've already got everything you need. (laughs) Everything you need for kingdom life was given to you through Jesus. So why do you boast in other things like you've been left wanting? Like there's something more that you need. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and he quotes it again in 2 Corinthians, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 9. Look in your worship guide where I have it printed there. Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love. There's chesed again. Justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares Yahweh. What's the unity that we're seeking? One where we are actively and individually pursuing the work of the kingdom. And if we're aiming to accomplish that, the foremost message on our tongue must be Christ and him crucified. He is our boast. He is our hope because he is the means by which we can know this glorious God. He, Jesus, must be the one whom we are most excited about because we have nothing, nothing but Jesus. He's all we need. Here's your last two blanks. As we humble ourselves, we exalt, we boast in Jesus through the message of the gospel And the effects of the gospel. We exalt Jesus through the message of the gospel. Christ and him crucified. And we exalt Jesus through the effects of the gospel. Christ's reign brought to bear on us. And 
on the earth. The goal of our activity is not action for action's sake or religion for religious sake. We want a strategic advance of the kingdom of God. We want the world to look more and more like heaven because people who don't know Jesus are believing in Jesus and their lives are being changed. One of our overarching metrics of success for our church should be, do we see lostness reducing people who don't know Jesus in our area coming to see Jesus? Not as our membership growing, are people who don't know Jesus coming to trust in Jesus. But we can't have that kind of passionate, unified pursuit if we're at war with each other. We must be unified in heart, mind, and intent. So today's the last of this short three-week sermon series, and week one, I talked about the arrogance problem in the world and how it seeped into our church faith, and several of you stopped me afterwards and said, there must be some really bad fights going on I, I wasn't aware of. Thank God that's not the case. Here's what I've been witnessing as a pastor. All of you love me. I think you do. <laughs> you, you, you've come to me over the last two years. You've shared your burdens with me. You've shared your concerns. And the assumption that everybody has is that when you believe something, that I agree with you. And so you share your, your fears, your anxieties, your anger with me. And what's wild is I hear you guys telling me these things, which I invite. That's good. But what I hear is that in your anger and frustration, y'all are lobbing missiles just to me, and that's fine. I, I can take it. But at the people on the opposite side of the church... That there are, are, are positions and beliefs and feelings that have actually internally pitted us against each other. And all it would take is like one nasty social media post or one awkward conversation at a, I don't know, Christmas party or Thanksgiving or something like that for a crack to form, very publicly perhaps. And in seeing that, I've been kind of processing like, how do, what do we do here? How do we talk about this without causing the problem. And that's where I realized that there's a more basic thing here than all the the junk we've experienced in the last year, two years. There's something more basic, which is this. Why do we exist? Why do we get together with each other? Why have we committed to each other, made promises in our our membership vows or whatever they're called in the questions, I think they're called in in the book of order. It's for Christ and Him crucified. He is more important than all the squabbles of the world. And the the work of him changing lives is more important than the things we disagree about. We should be able to disagree with each other and not in silence. We should be able to talk about these things, to go to the scriptures together. That's the kind of robust, honest community that the Lord has called us to. And And I'm happy to report, I feel like our elders have done a great job of this in the last two years. We have disagreed with each other openly and lovingly and gone to the scriptures and made decisions together that maybe we weren't all excited about, but we said, you know what, this is what, where we can all agree. We'll move together in lockstep. And we would love for all of us to be able to have those kinds of disagreements and to be able to walk together in unity because we want Jesus to be known to the ends of this parish and really and truly to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, I am really hopeful, very hopeful. I think our church going into 2020 was a healthy church. And I think despite the pressure of 2020 and 2021, we have emerged a healthy church, but a little bruised a little beat up. That's okay. As we move now toward a time of thanksgiving here in a couple of weeks, 
is it, yeah, a couple of weeks, something like that. Uh, and we move into Advent. I think this is going to be a wonderful time for us to heal, to comfort each other, to encourage each other, and even to get the gospel out to our neighbors. Let me pray for our body. Let's pray together. Father, I am so deeply grateful to be called to this community, to be called to this people. The last two years were difficult for everybody, but I'm glad to have been through it with these folks because I know their hearts. And even though they disagree on secondary issues from time to time, I know they agree on the most important thing, their desire, Christ, to be known by the children in this church, by the people in our community. We want the gospel to spread. We want the kingdom of God here in St. Tammany and around the world. So Lord, teach us again, remind us how to emphasize those most important things so that we can disagree on the less important things, so that we can allow for diversity and conversation and, and godly challenging of ideas where we disagree. But Lord, make us people of the Bible. Help us to take our decision points from the scriptures and may that be our stand. And Lord, I pray that you would preserve our unity for years to come and not just a unity of sticking together, a missional unity that we would reduce the, 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 the quotient of the lost in our community, that we would be a presence of the gospel, a kingdom movement, not for our glory. Make us less that Christ will become more. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.